We're going to be in Revelation 17 through 19 again. I'm going to remove my jacket only to make you feel a little more comfortable uh, where you are. Uh, if it's a little bit warm in here, this will help you not feel quite as hot, you know, if I don't have my, my jacket on up here. But actually, it's, it's not too bad where I'm standing from. Uh, if you think of your relationship with Jesus Christ as that of a wife to a husband. Have you been a faithful bride to that husband? Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the marriage union depicts the relationship of Christ and his church. As a believer in the church, therefore, you are depicted as the bride of Christ. Are you a faithful obedient bride to your husband, the Lord Jesus. This afternoon, John and Jenna will exchange vows and enter into a covenant with each other to become husband and wife. And and Jenna will repeat these words to John. They're both going to say these words, but I'm thinking particularly of Jenna, the wife-to-be. She will repeat these vows to John. At least I hope she will repeat them. She said she would yesterday in the rehearsal, and and I, I know he's hoping she will. But ostensibly, she will repeat these words to him. She will say, I promise to be your faithful wife from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge to you my faithfulness. Those words are, in essence, your vows to Jesus Christ. As a believer united to him, we make the same kind of plea to Jesus Christ when we come to him and embrace him and promise to to love him and be faithful to him. Now, he keeps us. That's the truth of the scripture, and it's a good thing. It's not in our power that we're hanging on. He holds us. But we promise to love him and to follow him. Are we keeping our vows? Because we tend to wander away from our love for Christ and our commitment to him. We tend to be unfaithful by giving our heart to something or someone else, earthly pleasures taking your place, as we just read on the screen as the instruments played. Giving our heart to someone and something else and not giving our highest love to him. In fact, you know what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11? He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see what Paul is saying here? He thinks of himself as the father of the bride. The believers at Corinth. He's already told them a couple different places in the letter, uh, his letters to the Corinthians. He sees them as his, he sees them as their, his spiritual children. He, he refers to himself as their father. So he's already got that going on. He's the one who preached the gospel to them. He saw them come to faith in Christ. So he's the father of the bride in this case. And I already told you last week that in the ancient culture, there were three stages that a bride went through 
before she was officially married. First, the marriage contract was signed and the arrangements, arrangements were made nearly a year in advance sometimes. And during that year, the bride remained in her own house under the watchful eye of her father to assure that she was a pure bride. In our culture, this has become the engagement period. Then when it's when it time for the wedding, the bride would be paraded down the street and her father and mother would be with her and her attendants would go before her and it would be a joyous yet solemn occasion and they would make their way to the house of the groom. Today, that processional is mimicked by the bride coming down the aisle as the groom waits for her to join him by his side. And finally, the bride would arrive at the house of her husband, a pure and faithful bride, and there would be a great feast, a marriage supper that would last sometimes for days. That would, that would be the marriage, the marriage and the marriage supper of the same kind of thing, the, the three stages of this marriage. And as the father of the bride, Paul is yearning for his betrothed daughter, the church at Corinth, to remain pure, not to be led astray into sin, because he's looking to that day when she meets her husband, the Lord Jesus. And Paul does not want to be that father who hangs his head in shame because his daughter does not arrive a pure virgin to her husband. He doesn't want her to end up like Eve. Eve, the wife who was deceived. Eve, to whom the serpent said, you shall not surely die. God's just holding you back. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like a God. You'll be like him. Who knows how long that deception worked on the heart of Eve. How long she may have gazed upon that fruit after the serpent slithered off to let his deception do its work. It may have taken a couple of days for Eve to contemplate what the serpent said, for her to pass the fruit a couple of different times, maybe take a little uh, side trail in the garden and just to see it again and start thinking, wow, it looks really nice. Wow, I wonder what it would taste like. And of course, it would make her godlike. Who knows how slowly and definitely the serpent's cunning convinced Eve that all God had given to her was not enough, that God was actually stingy, that he was holding something back, and she needed something outside of his word to bring her satisfaction, and she was led astray from a sincere and pure devotion both to her husband, Adam, and to her God. But the deception eventually did its work, and Eve's devotion faltered. In 2 Corinthians 11, if we were to keep reading, we would learn that Paul's concern is due to the messengers of Satan who appear, he says later in the chapter, as an angel of light, just the same as the serpent appeared in the garden, and, and that they would draw the hearts of the people at, Corinthian, at the Corinthian church away from their loyalty and devotion to Christ and compromising their marital purity becoming instead like the prostitute in Hosea that we've been reading about, committing spiritual adultery. That can so easily happen. It's a deception. It's a cunning of the world and of Satan. And so again, we need to say to ourselves, how faithful are we to our vows to Jesus Christ? You might say, well, nobody can be 100% faithful all of the time in every thought and action. Well, let me be the first to admit that. We are a fallen people betrothed to a faithful Lord. 
we tend to wander when we believe the lies that tell us Christ alone is not enough. We wander looking for other attractions and fulfillments. And as a true believer, when that happens, when we realize it is happening, we repent and we turn back to our greatest love. But it does frustrate us, I hope, when we see ourselves wandering. The longer you live for Jesus Christ and really want to see yourself grow in Christ, the more you're aware of that struggle that you're just not going to be who you imagined you would be, this faithful follower of Christ that never faltered. And if you're frustrated by that, the passage we're going to consider this morning, Revelation, should really cause us to rejoice because it promises that one day we will be united as the bride of Christ to our Lord and we will be a pure bride. No more wandering, no more sin. We will be completely satisfied forever in Christ and Christ alone. We've been considering Revelation 17 through 19 under the title, The Fall of Babylon and the Exaltation of the Bride. We're going to start talking about the bride now after several weeks of looking at Babylon. Babylon is the name that the prophecy of Revelation gives to this wicked cultural influence that holds sway over the entire earth during the tribulation period. It's an influence that by policy would lead people away from devotion to Christ in order to embrace the things of this world and to destroy, to hunt down and to kill true believers who refuse to get in line with the program. No wonder Babylon is depicted in John's vision as this great prostitute riding the beast or the Antichrist, decked out in gold and jewels, wearing luxurious clothes, holding a cup of abominations and drunk with the blood of the saints. But in the passages we've been reading, God judges this Babylon and brings her down to ruin. Near the end of chapter 17, God puts it into the heart of the beast and the kings that serve the beast to destroy Babylon, their partner in crime against the lamb and his people. So chapters 17 and 18 are mainly about the prostitute Babylon and her fall. But in chapter 19, we begin to see the exaltation of the Lamb's bride. And we're going to see it again later in chapters uh, 20 and 21. We're going to see about the bride. I'm not going to refer to that uh, as we're in chapter 19, but we're, we're going to see this theme now the rest of our study in Revelation. So I want to begin reading, if we can, in chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and let's read down through verse 9. Uh, this morning. John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be a, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. We've been looking at these chapters with the idea that the Lord desires we respond in a certain way. And and they're actually fatherly exhortations we looked at uh, last week because of it being Father's Day. They really are the kinds of exhortations we would give uh, to our children. And looking at the passage, not by focusing on all the little tiny details Uh, that that are, are very intriguing and worth talking about, but really looking at the big picture of what God wants to teach us through this leads us to... Uh, respond to the text in several different ways. We saw that the Lord wants us to be wise about the scriptures and about our time. And he wants us to be warned in chapter 18, lest we become infected by the Babylonian spirit of our age. And last week we saw that he wants us to be assured that God is in control, that the evil will be finally judged, that wrongs will be righted, and that those who are righteous in Christ will stand redeemed. And this morning, as I said, the scripture is calling upon us to be joyful, to celebrate all that God is doing, all that he assures us of. And there's a lot in these chapters to rejoice at. In chapter 17, we're reminded in verse 14 that in the end, the lamb will conquer the beast because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And in chapter 18, he calls out, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. He's talking to all those who have preached the gospel and have shared the, the, the truth from God throughout all ages. Rejoice because God has given judgment for you against her. He's vindicated us. When we come to chapter 19, we're called upon several times to rejoice. Did you notice that? In verse 1, the cry goes out, Hallelujah. That's an invitation to praise God or to praise Yah. That's short for Yahweh. I don't, I don't know if you, if you read Hebrew, but that's a Hebrew word. Hallel means praise. If you put a little U at the end, that's Hallelujah. That means let us praise. It's an invitation. And Yah is short for Yahweh, which is why we shouldn't pronounce this hallelujah. That kind of puts the emphasis on the you, right? It's hallelujah. Let us praise Yah. Let us praise the Lord. Why are we called to praise? Because of God's judgments here. He's judged the great evil, the prostitute, Babylon, who corrupted the earth. And though uh, th- through that judgment, he has avenged the blood of his precious servants. In verses 3 and 4, the same call to worship. Yah goes out because of his judgment and the 24 elders from chapters 4 and 5 who surround the throne of God in the heavenly temple are calling for this universal praise. And then in verse 5, from the throne itself, possibly from one of the four living creatures that we read about in chapters 4 and 5, they call out, praise our God, all his servants. And then in verse 6, there is a great cry, a great cry. John describes it as 
what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! This is the greatest, loudest Hallelujah yet! And the reason for this intense rejoicing, notice, is the reign of God over the earth and what that means finally for God's people. In particular, verse seven, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself wedding, uh, ready. And down in verse nine, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So there's a lot of rejoicing in these verses, a call for joy. And though we are waiting to experience, aren't we? We're waiting to experience this great event that produces such joy. It should cause us to rejoice even now in anticipation of that day. Remember what Hebrews 12, 2 says? Jesus endured even the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He wasn't experiencing that joy on the cross, but he was enduring the cross because of the joy that was to come. Well, this prophecy is setting joy before us. And in our time remaining, I'd like us to focus on one of the sources of that joy. Let's, let us rejoice, he says, in verse 7, and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. What is this marriage of the Lamb? Or as it's called in verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm guessing that most of you have probably seen a picture like this, this artwork idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a lot of versions of it online. You don't have to look them up on your phone right now, but you know, afterwards you could probably peruse the internet a little bit and find a lot of interesting examples. This long banquet table stretching into infinity. Can you imagine just how long that table would have to be to seat all of the redeemed at the marriage supper of the Lamb from all generations since people have been believing in the Lord. It may be why the kingdom is a thousand years. It would take just about that long to get through the buffet line, you know, to get to the table for the, for the marriage supper. But what does this all mean? Well, you know, there are a lot of ideas about what the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb actually refer to. And, I, and in this journey of Revelation, I've mentioned this several times, I've purposely avoided listing out various views of what this verse means and what that verse means and then defending, you know, my own view and, and so forth. I mean, it, it could very easily turn into a classroom lecture. And we want the moral weight of the text to minister to us and cause us to worship and draw us to Christ, not to simply fill our head with facts about revelation. So I've avoided that kind of thing. But when it comes to the marriage of the Lamb, I struggled with this a lot yesterday. How do, I, how do I approach this topic? I think it would be helpful for our understanding if I refer to a popular, popular view of this text first and then explain why I think uh, it, it is probably not what John is saying here in Revelation in contrast to that more popular view. Now, this is not going to shake heaven and earth, this view of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, oftentimes you'll find in theologies, people will not even deal with this because there are so few verses about it and it's kind of cryptic the way it's presented. A lot of people don't deal with it in particular. So I'm going to quote from a standard college-level dispensational theology textbook. This is the Moody Handbook of Theology written by Paul Enns, a really solid theology in many respects. 
Uh, in fact, I believe this is still the undergraduate theology for a lot of you who are uh, taking theology class at the local Christian university uh, in, on Wade Hampton. Um, so Paul ends defines the marriage of the Lamb this way. He says, prior to the second advent, which is the second coming of Christ, right? He's, he comes first in the rapture and then it, it, to take us away, and then he comes, his, uh, actually, he, he, his first coming is the first advent where he comes uh, as, as a child and redeems us on the cross. Uh, he raptures the church, and then he comes to earth in his second coming, which is described later in chapter 19. In fact, as soon as we get through verse 11, it picks up with the description of Jesus' coming. But this definition says, prior to that event, the, the final coming of Christ to set up his kingdom, the marriage of Christ and the church takes place in heaven. When Christ returns with his bride in Revelation 19.7, the marriage has already taken place. I think he means 19.14, actually, there. I think that's a typo. That's not my typo, but I, I think that's the verse he's actually referred to there. But nevertheless, when he comes back uh, with his bride, the marriage has taken place in heaven. Whereas the marriage supper has reference to Israel and takes place on earth in the form of the millennial kingdom. Now, let me lay out very simply what he is saying here. This is a, a very common view. So, uh, Paul, and in, in, in fact, you know, I want to be fair to him too. He's writing this long theology and it goes through all of eschatology. It had just a short paragraph on that. I imagine he's just putting down the standard view, quoting some people and moving on. I don't know that he's actually done his own work here. He's just, you know, putting this forth as a college textbook. So let me lay out very simply what he's saying here. Right up front, you notice that he makes a distinction, doesn't he? Between the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. These two, he says, occur at different times in different places involving different people. The marriage of the Lamb takes place between the church and Jesus Christ. After the rapture, the church, therefore, is the bride of Christ. That's, that's who the bride is, the church. In other words, those who were saved since uh, the Spirit was poured out in Acts 2 all the way till today. And this marriage takes place before Christ returns in his second coming to reign upon the earth in heaven. Uh, and uh, we don't have to uh, look down at the description of the Lord's final glorious return uh, to find this out. But if you, you want to look down there in the text, Jesus returns on this white horse in verse 11 and then there is this stunning description of Jesus coming in glorious power. There it is. In verse 14 says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And in this view, it's believed that those, that's the bride of Christ coming on white horses. They've all got their own horse. And they're coming with Christ. They're, they're the armies of heaven with him when he comes to judge the earth. And it's almost the same way the bride's clothing is described back in verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You also have the statement in Revelation 19.7 that says, the marriage of the Lamb has come, putting the marriage in the past tense. The marriage of the Lamb, verse 7, has come. So the marriage is in the past tense or before the second coming. You see why they say it's before the, the second coming of Christ. On the other hand, notice the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul N. says uh, that this refers to Israel. 
So this is the supper that takes place after the marriage of Christ to the bride, the church. The supper occurs on earth during the millennial kingdom after the second coming of Christ. In fact, Paul ends, actually says the supper is in the form of the millennial kingdom. So the supper, he says, is a metaphor for the whole kingdom in his view. But what he doesn't say here in this view is that Israel is not the bride the people of Israel, according to all the Old Testament, including all the Old Testament believers, they are the guests. So the church is the bride. Israel, all the Old Testament believers, are the guests at this wedding feast, the marriage supper. And again, notice John is told to write in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they're, they're treated as guests to be invited to the supper. In fact, if anyone is still with me, uh, some teach that the marriage in verse 7 and the marriage supper in verse 9 both take place as two separate events. Some say the, the wedding takes place in heaven, the, the feast takes place in the millennial kingdom. Others say they both take place in heaven. Well, if that's true and the Old Testament saints are guests and they're not resurrected yet, how are they there? They say, well, they're coming, their spirit bodies, they, their souls are there but they're not in their resurrected bodies yet. But this doesn't, so this doesn't stop the Old Testament believers from showing up as guests at the wedding. Now, speaking for myself, I just think that trying to explain the marriage and marriage supper of the Lamb in this traditional dispensational way adds an unnecessary layer of complication to the interpretation of this text. And I say this in spite of the fact that I think there are some very important distinctions that the Bible makes between Israel and the church. No matter what your theological tradition, there are some distinctions, and I think some major distinctions, between Israel and the church. In fact, my interpretation of Revelation depends upon those distinctions. But in this instance, I think it is more likely that the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb are really a reference to the same event. They both refer to this final realization of the perfect union between Christ and those who are in Christ, which includes all believers from all ages. First of all, in the ancient custom of marriage, the marriage supper was the marriage. In other words, I don't think the original readers of Revelation 19 would have thought that the author was talking about two separate events, the marriage and then the marriage supper. And then in verse 9, I'm sorry, because he says in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and then verse 9, uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as you see that there. Th these, these people who are blessed because they're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they're blessed because they're the bride who is invited to this feast that will take place with all the redeemed people after Jesus returns. Now, you might think, what about the fact that the bride is clothed in white linen, bright and pure, and the saints returning with Christ in verse 14 are clothed in white linen, bright and pure? Doesn't that mean that the marriage has already taken place when they come? No, it doesn't have to mean that in the least. In fact, I think we can read way too much into this. All of the righteous people and angels in the book of Revelation are wearing white robes or white clothing or white garments, with one exception. The two witnesses in chapter 11 are dressed in sackcloth because they're styling themselves like the Old Testament prophets. But besides that, everybody's wearing white in Revelation if they belong to Jesus Christ. 
Then you might think, well, why does it say in verse 7, if you look there, that the marriage of the Lamb has already come? Well, if you've been tracking with us during this series, that shouldn't surprise you in the least. Because if there's one thing we've seen in Revelation, it's the fact that the timeline is continually paused. Sometimes the action jumps back to what happened in the past. Sometimes it jumps to what has already, what is promised in the future. I'll point you back, for instance, to Revelation 11, 15 through 18. I don't know if anybody remembers when we were that far back in Revelation chapter 11. That was years ago, right? He says in verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become. It's the same verb tense. It's like it's already happened. Has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Well, has he in the timeline of Revelation? I mean, we've worked all our way into chapter 19, and we're just now getting after this this section here, we will just finally get to the description of Christ's return that it's talking about in chapter 11. But it's talking in chapter 11 as if it's already come. And he says in verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. How could the passage say this thing, these things have already happened in the storyline of Revelation? It's because of the nature of this prophecy we're reading. Some of the texts are proleptic. That means if they describe events in the future that are so certain they are talked about as if they are in the past. And I think that's what's going on here in the text in chapter 19. The fact that the marriage and the marriage supper are mentioned before the actual return doesn't mean they have to take place chronologically before that return. So why would a reference to the marriage and the marriage supper appear here? rather than afterwards, in chronological order. I think it's for this reason. I think it's to draw the contrast between Babylon, the wicked prostitute, and the bride of the Lamb, the righteous believers. The city of Babylon is styled, as we've seen, as a wicked prostitute, decked out in luxurious clothes and gold and jewels, holding in her hand a cup of unspeakable abominations and impurities, the text says. And she is riding the beast, the Antichrist, showing a kind of union with him and his government. But ultimately, she is destroyed. The bride, on the other hand, is presented as pure, wearing fine, bright linen, which John says are the righteous deeds of the saints. She is in union with the Lamb. And in the end, she is vindicated. So what is this marriage of the Lamb or this marriage supper? It is the full and blessed realization of our salvation through Christ, the Lamb, in our final, glorified, sinless, resurrected form. It's it's the same kind of promise that God made to Israel, I think, in Hosea, the, the passages we've already read where God says, I will marry you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and mercy. There's, there's no way that we could think of Israel making herself pure. God said, I'm going to have to make you pure myself. You can think of this marriage by analyzing the three, three stages in ancient customs of marriage that I mentioned earlier. In the first stage, as I said earlier, the marriage contract is signed. The bride is promised to her husband. If, if you want to draw out this analogy completely, this is when we place our faith in the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection. And the, in, in embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, we become promised to him. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Acquiring possession of it is another term for uh, coming into that marital union with the Lamb. That's what he's talking about in Revelation 19. The word guarantee translates a Greek word that means a down payment. That is a payment of some of what has been promised up front as a guarantee that the rest is indeed coming. In modern Greek, actually, this word that means down payment is actually used to refer to the engagement period or the engagement ring. So when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you received the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to unite with you as a pledge, a down payment, a promise that one day you will be finally united with Jesus Christ, your Savior. That's stage one. In the second stage, the bride is kept by her father to ensure her purity before she makes her way to the home of her husband. This is the believer's sanctification. And I think this very idea is expressed in Ephesians 5, where Paul likens marriage to the union of Christ and the church. Paul says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That, for the purpose that, he might sanctify her, cleanse her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is very similar to the way the Lord's people are described in Revelation chapter 19. Notice again in verse 7, the text says, his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And this fine linen, bright and pure, he says, is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now you might catch the classic tension here. On the one hand, the Lord's bride is making herself ready. Do you see that? And if ready means without spot or wrinkle or blemish, it means that she is purifying herself. She's doing what it takes to keep herself pure, to keep herself clean, free from indecency or moral or immorality or, or anything that would dishonor the one that she is predestined to marry. On the other hand, Notice it says it was granted to her by the Lord to clothe herself. 
In other words, she has divine help in becoming pure. The Lord has given to her the very garments of purity that she must wear if she is going to meet her bridegroom. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does to us when we take him as our savior. He justifies us. He clothes us, as it were, with his righteousness. And these two dynamics work together. Our desire to be pure, a desire that has been put into our hearts of the Holy Spirit within us, and the Lord's work in making us pure. The first, our desire to be pure, is a very frustrating process. I don't know if it is for you. I suppose it is. A very frustrating process because we know we should be righteous. And on our best moments, with the help of the Spirit, we are striving toward righteousness, to live holy and pure lives. But we are often reproaching ourselves, are we not? And confessing our sins to God and vowing to do better. We don't feel like beautiful brides at all. We feel like ugly brides with blemishes and warts and deformities. Why would the Lord want us? But the second work, the Lord's work in making us pure, gives us this great cause for rejoicing. Because in the end, it is through his power that he will present himself to, present to himself a glorious church, us, without spot or wrinkle. And through his work, we will be that beautiful bride he deserves. We can scarcely believe it at the moment. We, we can't really see how it's going to happen, but we trust him that it's going to happen. Because in that third stage of the marriage, the stage that is in view in Revelation 19, the marriage has come, the feast has begun, and we are finally united with the Lord in our resurrected bodies. No hint or stain of sin. No desire to act outside his will. But completely fulfilled in knowing and following and serving him forever. Now, is there an actual wedding, an actual feast? Now, this is going to be a ceremony. And in an, in an actual feast in, in the millennial kingdom or maybe after that, the Bible just doesn't give us those kind of details. Hence, a lot of different ideas of what all of this could mean. But Jesus did tell his disciples at the Last Supper that he would not eat the Passover meal or drink the wine again until he would eat and drink in the kingdom that was to come. We don't know all of the answers to our questions. Where does the metaphor stop and the reality begin? But I do know this. This passage is not put here to beat us up, to make us feel like losers because we can't pull our spiritual act together. And when it comes to our sanctification, we're big failures. Try as we might by the grace of God to have pure thoughts and pure motives and be consistent in our obedience to God, we still fail him. That's not why this passage is put here, to beat us up. It's put here to give us hope-filled joy because we are promised that we will be this pure bride that the Lord is returning for. And this promise doesn't cause us to sit back and not worry about our holiness. We can just kick back because now we're promised this. Rather, it gives us joy in the midst of the process. In fact, First uh, John 3 comes to mind where he says, those who have this hope in them purify themselves even as he is pure. It doesn't make us relax. It makes us say, wow, I can do this because God is doing it in me. And it gives us this great joy. 
So what the Lord began, he will complete for his glory. So this morning, let's rejoice and exalt and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb is coming and we will forever be with the Lord. Father, thank you for...